Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Stick to Wrestling is a podcast that generally talks about wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's actually more 80s than anything, uh, but that's what we do. Before I get rolling, I want to congratulate my friends Jeff Bowdrin and Barry Rose. Uh, They have done 300 episodes of their podcast, Breaking Kayfabe, and they have retired the podcast. They're still doing a a part-time Patreon, but the the weekly podcast is done. And like I said, I want to congratulate them. 300 episodes, 300 excellent episodes. Never missed an episode, never relate on an episode. Uh, My goal is to be just like those guys when I get to 300. I will someday retire from Stick to Wrestling. I think I've mentioned this on the show. I plan on doing 500 episodes. By that point, you will have heard enough of me i am sure but that plan could change i enjoy doing it i i like hanging out uh with my friends and talking wrestling every week so who knows um i want to thank mike leslie and jeff jerry buckholtz i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly for their generous donations to stick to wrestling if you would like to donate to this free ad free podcast uh go to paypal and donate whatever you can uh to the email address pro wrestling archives at gmail.com i also want to thank adam loose and billy pike uh right before we recorded today i i went to read my wrestling observer newsletter on the subject we're about to discuss and what i do and i do it pretty faithfully i watch the show And then I start reading about it because I don't want my opinion uh, affected by other people's opinions, if that makes any sense. And I had a drive that I thought had my 88 observers on it, and the drive is somehow like defective or warped, whatever word you use. And I just put out an APB, you know, help me out here. Someone have these, and these guys came right to my rescue. So I appreciate it. Uh, And I want to bring on, oh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo in his avatar. Let's bring on our occasional co-host, Steve Generelli, to tell you about our Facebook group. Steve, how are you doing? Well, it's it's great to be back, and I wanted to tell you that uh, if you've been part of the group uh, as of today, you would get to hear about Bob Cottle's real job you would also get to uh um, talk about the missed potential of a prolonged buddy landrell versus rick flair battle the nature boys feud and also uh, the great richard land just posted audio on our stick to facebook group stick to wrestling facebook group uh, about the great bruno versus stan hansen match my holy grail match from shea stadium he posted the audio so we can actually hear the match from shea stadium yeah, I would love to have Richard on at some point. He's been invited. It's just difficult because he's in England. Lou is in California. So we've got a whole lot of uh, time zones to deal with. Richard's a really good guy. And I want to thank him because I always, well, not always, frequently use his site, the history of WWE.com, for research. So thank you, Richard, and thank you, Graham. 
Today, it, we're going to discuss the almost 35th anniversary of the 1988 Great American Bash. We missed it by a couple of days, but our schedule has been a little bit off with, you know, we got the spring WWF 1983 that went off late, and then we missed the exact uh anniversary of the 1983 uh, world-class Star Wars shows, but I think four days not, is not going to kill anybody. Steve, I should have gone to this show. I, I was in Philadelphia like four weeks after this. I could have just gone to Philadelphia slash Baltimore instead. Big mistake. Well, for watching this show, um, I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of good positives to it, but to, to me, I mean, just from rewatching it again just the other day, I, I just felt like if I was there as a fan, uh, I would have somehow felt cheated. I mean, too many dusty finishes, too too many screwy things going on, not enough just basic, fundamental, good wrestling. Uh, I think I would have felt felt disappointed in being there. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoy my kicking dusty around shows, you're going to love this episode <laughs> because this, I mean... Well, let's start with this. This was supposed to be the main event of this show was originally scheduled as Ric Flair versus the Midnight Rider. And of course, that angle completely blew up. I mean, I used to watch all of the NWA TV shows. Okay, I, I not only watched the 605 Saturday show, I not only watch worldwide and pro in syndication every week. I mean, I watched the throw. Well, by this point, the Sunday show was NWA main event. So it was, it was no longer a throwaway show. And I watched the uh, the Saturday WTBS show, the, the morning show, which was a throwaway show. And all through the spring of 1988, all anyone talked about on any of those shows, okay, we're talking like six, seven hours of wrestling, was the Midnight Rider. Every baby face, every heel <laughs> was just talking about the Midnight Rider. And it, it, it didn't work. And at this point, by the way, that's too much TV. And at that point, Jim Crockett needed to make a decision, in my opinion, that someone else needs to be the booker. I mean... Every booker has a shelf life. Dusty had been booking for Crockett since 1984, and it was it was totally obvious that he was done. And you know, uh, Steve, I was reading um, someone who was doing recaps of old wrestling observers from like 20 years uh, like 20 years ago. They were doing this, mm -hmm. and he said that the hate was dripping off the pages for Dusty Rhodes, and it wasn't really the hatred for Dusty Rhodes; it was. We need someone to save this promotion, and it's not Dusty. <laughs> well, uh, by the by, the time they were yeah, beyond even beyond this card and and going into the fall and, and the end of 1988, I mean, the promotion was going through so many huge internal struggles, big power struggles of uh, you know Ric Flair against Dusty and. Uh, the, the the brain busters are Arn and Tully ready to pull out and uh and, and, and Jim Crockett just just defending Dusty till till no end. I mean, he wanted to keep him to the very end. He wanted to keep him beyond the end. Beyond beyond in the 1989, end. Jim Crockett was writing and 1990 was writing letters to whoever in the NWA. Jim Heard saying it, you know, recommending that they hire Dusty as Booker again. I, I mean, even even in the beginning of this year, I mean, you, you had mentioned. Uh, 
uh, how heavily they pushed the Midnight Rider, and that was a c- complete dud. Even before then, they had the angle that fell on his face with uh, uh, Larry Zabisco and Baby Doll in the photos against Dusty, and nobody cared. Nobody knew where that was going, and that got summarily dropped. Well, no one cared. For one reason, no one cared is Dusty got on TV and they said, ah, don't worry about the pictures. They're nothing. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait a minute. But I, I mean, yeah, I mean, Dusty, and once again, I'll, I'll, we'll be putting out several examples of this, but the, the idea was that the, the original plan for the show was the Midnight Rider was going to defeat Ric Flair for the NWA championship, and uh, Jim Crockett or someone was going to you know, say, okay, I've got to see who the champion was. Let's go behind closed doors, and you have to take off the mask, and just like they did in Florida in, in 1983, and Dusty was just going to hand him the championship and walk off. You know, it, it just shows you how like times change in wrestling. I mean, Dusty had had a, a good success with the Midnight Rider angle, and there's been so many other similar angles in wrestling over the years. Uh, we were guys just came out in different outfits, uh, but they were the you know the guy that was supposed to be a big mystery. I mean, when uh, I know in 2003 or 2004, uh, when Hulk Hogan came on against Vince, and I think he was Mister America, and it, he was really Hulk Hogan, and it was pretty obvious. But you know, you know those those gimmicks are kind of comical and kind of fun. But if you're trying to make money, if you're trying to get the fans into like a heated angle and have you know big box office, you're not going to do it with these guys who are over the hill like Dusty and like Hogan was in the mid 2000s. But pe- people wanted to see Sting and Luger. They wanted to see the new talent, and they wanted to see you know engaging storylines, engaging angles. I mean, it worked in Florida, and the reason the angle works, okay, and and Dusty came up with it, and I give him credit, every promotion, almost every promotion in 1983 had their own version of the Midnight Rider because it worked so well, and the idea behind it is that a babyface loses a loser-leave-town match in a way that he got so cheated and so screwed over that the fans cheer for the guy coming back under a mask because what happened to him was so unfair anyway. Right. And you kind of didn't have that with the Midnight Rider. I mean, you know, he accidentally hit Jim Crockett Jr. with a baseball bat, and somehow he got Dusty got banned for I think it was 120 days this time around. And you know, of course, no one wanted to go on camera saying they voted for it, but just no one got behind it. I mean, Dusty, he, I won't I won't say he was finished, but he needed to move lower on the card. He probably needed to take uh, Jimmy Valiant's old spot. Well, when when you watch the card that we're about to go over, the 1988 Great American Bash, he uh, Dusty looks so noticeably older entering the ring. I mean, he, he kind of looked like uh, his version of 1983 Ray Stevens in the WWF, just older and not really someone that you would feel should be in one of those top spots going against Barry Windham, who, of course, at the time was really one of the premier stars in the business. So but we'll get into that later. We will. And one other thing you mentioned, Dusty was older. I mean, he was heavier and wrestling had changed a lot since 1983. It was more a, of a physique oriented business and Dusty's f- physique just did not live up to, you know, a fan in 1988's expectation. 
Yeah, I remember when uh, Dave Meltzer was talking about going to the – he was, he may have gone to the Forum or, or maybe one of the shows in the Northern California for uh, WCW or NWA. And, and he went with like a kind of like a non-fan, and he was trying to explain who these people were. And, and, the, and the fans said to, to Meltzer, they said like uh, – well, 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 I know that's the Road Warriors and that's the opponents. Uh, who's the fat guy? And, and um, Meltzer said, that's the boss. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of explained it. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, this took place July 10th, 1988. This was the NWA's technically their third pay-per-view, but it was the one that the, the one that actually had uh, the you could buy it nationally. So it was kind of their first real pay-per-view. It was also the last of Jim Crockett promotions. By the time they hit pay-per-view again, the promotion had been sold. Steve, in my opinion, this had to be their WrestleMania three. This had to be huge. This had to be a great show. And we'll talk about whether or not it was the first two shows were absolutely awful. Starcade 87, I remember watching the tape the Saturday after, you know, the Saturday after Thanksgiving and, you know, watching it with my friends and just thinking, you know, as it went on, it's like, okay, the last two matches have to save the show because this has not been a very good show. And then it's okay, Ric Flair's got to save the day, and he just couldn't in that environment. So Starcade 87 gets a big thumbs down from me, but even worse was the January pay-per-view, the um, Bunkhouse Stampede. The, the Bunkhouse Stampede, that show was awful. So you have a, a promotion that's based on work rate and the kind of action violence that the fans liked, and, you know, this is their fun, you know, they haven't had good luck when the cameras were on. Let's see if they have good good luck this time. They didn't have any recaps or an introduction. They just dove straight into the first match. Yeah. Well, they did have a very, very brief, I mean, probably like 10 seconds or less, uh, little frames of like uh, Dusty uh, uh, Dusty against Wyndham and a little something with the horsemen. But you're right. It was so brief. I, I missed it the first time I saw it the second time. But um, but yeah, it was from Baltimore, and uh, WWF's own Dick Worley was the referee for the first match, which was uh, Sting and Nikita against Tully and Arn. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing I want to say too, you know, I know pay per view was in its infancy around this time. You know, wrestling pay per view was brand new, but the WWF had kind of showed them the the, the blueprint, excuse me, with their pay per views and their Saturday night's main event. Just hey, take a few minutes to tell us why we're here. Yeah, th th that would have definitely contributed. Uh, would have made it feel like a real entertainment. Uh, thing where you you kind of know what you're going to see and you have expectation and, and make it make it feel like a big event like the super bowl i mean the super bowl wouldn't start with the first play of the game you would get to know who the players are and know what's going on that that's a good analogy i mean this is the equivalent of broadcasting the super bowl with you know 10 seconds into it you see the kickoff right. <laughs> that wouldn't work but but you know it's funny a couple of months ago you and i went over uh, the big clash of the champions that they put on against wrestlemania 4 and that was such a a huge success in terms of doing exactly what they wanted to do to kind of steal the thunder of wrestlemania and they did put on a really stellar show uh highlighted by the big sting versus rick flair match so this was their next big event coming off that so you know if you're a fan of nwa you're probably thinking 
gosh, they're probably going to top what they did on the Clash of the Champions. You at least wanted them to keep that momentum going. You wanted them to build off of that Clash of the Champions. By the way, I I know right now I sound like someone who was a huge fan of this promotion because I was. I mean, here I am saying, you know, I want them to build off the momentum and, you know, just... What eventually wound up happening to this company was really disappointing. But let's take a look at this match. We've got Sting, who was the hottest baby face in the company. Either he or Lex Luger was the hottest baby face. But, I mean, Sting was red hot coming off of that clash against Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. And they put together the make the makeshift tag team of Sting and Nikita Koloff, which is a complete waste of Sting because Nikita, there's no other way to put it. He is toast. He is a shell of what he was two years earlier. I mean, he was never good in the ring, but now he doesn't even have that look anymore. It's just, you know, what is he even doing in this match? I was surprised from watching this match that he actually got a much better reaction than I was expecting him to for all the reasons you just mentioned. But the fans were really into him. I guess maybe just his history of, you know, what he had been before the, 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 the huge Russian, unbeatable Russian. And, and I guess the fans bought into him as he's now he's the uh, lean, mean and machine Russian at 240 pounds or whatever he was. I don't know who. I don't know who, but rather than go with Nikita, I would have picked some young guy, you know, that I wanted to push and put him in this spot. And hopefully he would get the rub from just being in this match. Like I said, I I don't know who I know. Shane Douglas was already gone. I know Brian Pillman wasn't there yet, but someone along those lines. and, And instead of just throwing Sting and Nikita together, you know, I would have had Sting, teaming with this guy on TV and saying, hey, you know, our goal is to get the tag team titles. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know if uh, I know one of the, the guys from the new breed got hurt in a car wreck. Maybe the other guy would have been available. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, Chris Champion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, how that's a good idea. Have have Sting take Chris Champion under his wing. But uh, what did you think of this match, Steve? I, I actually, and maybe you're going to fight me on this one, I actually thought this was really the best match on the card, honestly. Oh, I agree. I, I, I thought it was really good. The only thing I didn't like about it was the ending. I mean, I just it just seemed like such a kind of a, you know, F you to the fans. It's like, uh, hey, we're going to have new champions. Oh, it's a draw. <laughs> You know, I, I mentioned you mentioned it is a hot, hot crowd, and this was a good match. But Sting and Nikita in the ring celebrating with the belts at the end of the match. Once again, this is, you know, another glaring example of why Dusty needs to go. They needed to stop doing that a long time ago. That's something you do maybe once every two or three years in every town. They're doing it on their pay-per-view. It, it, it's just a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, not only are they doing it on the first match of the night, but they're going to end up doing it again on the most important match of the night. So, I mean, what what are they doing to their fans? I, I, I know. And one thing, one criticism I had about this match is staying at the end, he had Arn Anderson caught in the in the scorpion right Mm -hmm. and he's kind of half-heartedly putting him in that hold he's like celebrating like (laughs) pumping with one hand right and it's like you know he's got to have that i'm gonna break your back and make you quit i'm gonna take the tag team titles point of view about him 
you're, you're absolutely right. There was a sequence earlier in the match, a really nice sequence where he did this huge leap from uh, maybe the top turnbuckle down onto Arn, who was down the floor. I mean, a really impressive leap onto Arn. But and the, once he's off of him, he's celebrating. He's like doing all this hand motion and gesturing and posing. And it's like, you know, this is a real contest. You're, you're an idiot. What are you doing? I know there, there's got to be a balance and, you know, sometimes I, I know Sting was still kind of new, to, still very new to the business. What am I talking about? He'd been in there for less than two years and someone kind of needed to teach him that balance. Like showboating is part of wrestling and I get that and you need to get the crowd pumped up. But, you know, the example you used, uh, you know, when he had Arn at a disadvantage and the one I used where he just wasn't, you know, in I'm going to take the tag team titles mode. I'm going to break your back or you're going to submit one of the two. One thing about this match, it demonstrated what a great tag team Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard had become. They had started teaming regularly at the end of 1987, and they were just getting better and better. Well, I, I love that team. I mean, I, I've loved them anytime I've seen them. I don't think there's ever been a bad match with those two. Loved them in WWF. And the, this match, I, I could kind of see their frustration as far as, I mean, at one point during the match, I almost felt like these were two jobbers. <laughs> that Artelli and Arnold all of a sudden were jobbers just flying all over the place for these guys and not having a moment. I mean, there was a moment where Arn hit a DDT that was super impressive and the, the, the whole crowd popped for it. But still, uh, it just felt like uh, they were doing too much, too much uh, selling for uh, Sting and for uh, Nikita. No, you're right. I, I agree. There, there needed to be a little more balance uh, in this match. I mean, you know, it, it once again another dusty kind of. You know, he falls into these booking cliches. You know, clearly. If you just saw this match, obviously Sting and Nikita, the good guys, are the better team, but Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard are the champions, and they come out of the match with the belts. That made no sense. No, it, it made no sense, and uh, just um, I, I think that this match was probably one of those one of those things, one of those factors that made Tully and Arn get so frustrated, and it's like. Do, do we want to just uh, do we want to go to New York? Do we want to lead the promotion because you know, they they just look like idiots after a while? You know they 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 put on a great show, but they always end up either winning winning by a hook or a crook or or losing in a bad way. Yeah, but I, I, by this point there was a lot of dissatisfaction in the locker room. Another reason why you know Dusty kind of needs to go. Which yeah, I know no not everyone's going to love the Booker, but. Right now, the Booker's got so much heat, and Ric Flair, uh, I don't know if, if by this point he'd agreed to go to the WWF, but um, he was supposed to be the surprise at SummerSlam 1988, and he backed out of it, but Rick wasn't happy either. Yeah, I, I think all, th all three of them were just tired because, I mean, you know, going back to 87 and maybe 86 a little bit, but especially in 87, I mean, if you look at all those major shows, those big events and a lot of the TV stuff that was on free TV, I mean, the horsemen were just selling their butts off for everybody. I mean, there wasn't anybody they were in the ring with. They're, they're just selling their butts off and making the other team look like a million bucks, but they... Uh, you know, they may have the straps, but they always look so foolish along the way. 
That's the thing. They were they were made to look too weak. Another ju- reason you want to join the Facebook group, uh, we took some questions about this show. Warren Beasley Jr. asks, why were the Road Warriors in that stupid triple tower match and not challenging Arn and Tully for the tag titles? Sting and Nikita should have been in the tower match. Not sure I agree with this Sting part, and we'll get more into the tower match as we go along. Once I'm going to keep harping on this. This really needed to be the biggest show they could possibly make it. And in my opinion, I, I could have told you this in 1988, they should have had uh, the Road Warriors against Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard for the tag team titles. Had some kind of a stip where, you know, there must be a winner, you know, not saying it exactly like this, but... What happened at Starcade 87 is not going to happen again, you know, yeah. and, and put the tag team titles on the Road Warriors. Now, I know a lot of you just said, wait a minute, you can't do that. The Road Warriors refuse to, to do jobs. Worry about that later. Okay. And they, they won the titles a few months later anyway, but worry about that later have more than one really big thing happen on this pay-per-view. And I think that's the direction they should have gone with even if it might have made Tully and Arn slightly unhappy? I think the reason, to answer Warren's question uh, from my point of view, uh, the reason that the Road Warriors were in that crazy triple tower match was I think you know the original plan was that they were going to be in uh, that match with the Powers of Pain, who had already jumped to New York, and, um, and they just apparently kind of left them in that position and just found new opponents instead. That was the plan. They were going to be in the uh, the Tower of Doom match, and the power uh, powers of pain took off. Uh, Russian assassin and Ivan Koloff took the powers of pain place, and that went about as well as you can expect. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll have to recap that match in a minute or two. But we do have in the middle of that match or before that match, we have the Fantastics against the Midnight Express. And this was the match where uh, they not only uh, put Jimmy Cornette in a cage above the ring, but they put him in a straitjacket as well. If I'm Jim Cornette, I mean, he's done it before. He's been in that cage, you know, up high above the ring in a straitjacket. But that's got to be scary. Every time they make you do that, that's got to be scary because you're helpless up there. It takes one crazy fan who wants to do something to Jim Cornette and Jim's in real danger. Well, well uh, there were times during the match where, and I'm sure you saw this, where they had a big close-up of him just kind of like uh, uh, almost in the fetal position in the cage, uh, in the little cage there. He's, he's looking down upon the action, and he did look scared. But uh, I, I actually thought, you know, and I understand why they do these gimmicks. I mean, it's, it's showbiz and everything. But um, I, I thought him not being at ringside really uh, took away from the match itself. I, I don't think having him up there really – you know, added any drama. I know they wanted to humiliate him as as the character, but uh, I, I thought I thought that was really a waste of time, honestly. Yeah, Jim really adds to the matches. He's you know he's might even be better than than Bobby Heenan as far as a, a ringside manager. And th- the story behind it was that the Fantastics uh, demonstrated a straitjacket on TV when they thought the Midnight Express weren't around. And as soon as they, they put the straitjacket on, I think I think Tommy put it on Bobby, and you heard this person in the WTBS studio audience just say. Midnight Express is coming out. <laughs> it was so obvious. <laughs> and 
they just, you know, of course, the Midnights, you know, pounded away on the helpless Fantastics. And this was a continuation of that angle. So I get it. But Steve, like you said, you're, you're taking away from Jim Cornette being at ringside. Yeah, I, I really miss his his presence there and in all the stuff that he did. And and I will also say, you know, um, as you said at the beginning of the show, this was supposed to be kind of their version of a WrestleMania, their version of the biggest show of the year. I mean, one thing Vince never would have done was to put two tag team matches on top of each other. And I, I think really, uh, not not to be kissing his ass, but I really think uh, that did take away. Uh, you, you're having this match, which is supposed to be so exciting and so important. Well, we just saw a tag team match. It was already super important and super good. So it, it just, you know, if they, had they had a, a regular singles match or something in here just to kind of slow it down a little bit, I think it would have helped the show. That makes sense. You're right. They did have two hot tag team matches in a row, and that's probably not the way to build a card. You know, Steve, I really thought this was a great feud. Uh, it came about when, you know, Jim Cornette kind of noticed that the Midnight Express didn't have anything to do. They had feuded with the Fantastics twice before, uh, 1984 in Mid-South, and then again, 1985 in World Class, and he knew what a great tag team the Fantastics were. And, I mean, th this was a great feud, but it needed a conclusive ending on this night. We kind of got one. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, the, the heels won uh, for a change, and everything was good in the world uh, for us heel fans. But, uh, you know, again, I, I just I just felt that, that Cornette not being there was such a big distraction to the match. I, that made me disappointed, I guess. One thing they did in this match that I thought was a, that was smart, they acknowledged the Maryland State Athletic Commission. A little foreshadowing there. A little foreshadowing, and coming into this show, for weeks coming into this show, uh, I was having conversations with people, and it was like, I was saying, you know, wow, I'm a little bit surprised that they're having this show in Maryland, because Maryland has a very strict athletic commission, and you cannot have blood on the wrestling shows. Mm -hmm. Talk about foreshadowing. There you go. <laughs> you, you called it right there. I, I had I didn't have any idea, but it was, you know, once again, it was, I thought that was a, a smart little thing they did, just kind of wedging that in there. Uh, the match ends when Bobby Fulton puts a, a Bobby Eaton puts a chain in Bobby Fulton's tights and the ref catches Bobby Fulton. Cute little ending and the end to what I thought was a, a really good feud. You know, you know, one thing I think needs to be said too. Uh, even going back to the first match again, I, I think I think that uh, the thing that Dusty didn't realize about all these screw job endings or Dusty finishes, as they like to say, in the olden days, like say back in the seventies, where he grew up under Eddie Graham and the old old style thinking. I guess the mentality was, hey, we're gonna we're gonna screw the fans, but that's gonna make them that much more angrier to come back next week and watch the follow up match where the good guy hopefully will win. But I think these the fans that were coming now were more sophisticated, and instead of saying, "Gee, I can't wait to buy my ticket for next week," they were just getting pissed off and like, "I may never buy another ticket after this." You know, they're they felt screwed. I mean, look no further than, you know, the Carolinas in Virginia. I mean, you know, people had stopped coming to the matches. They they were drawing poorly, and they were drawing, drawing poorly because they were turned off by Dusty's booking. Now, I, I put something on here uh, as I was watching the show a couple of nights ago. I wrote... 
I love the Fantastics, but they have a ceiling. Then two days later, we put on the Facebook group, hey, do you have any questions on this show? And Dr. Nick Coliatis writes, what did the Rock and Roll Express have that the, that the Fantastics didn't? Fulton and Rogers had better physiques, were better athletes, and in my opinion, had better matches than Ricky and Robert, yet the Rock and Roll Express was over on a different level. Was it because Ricky and Robert came first? Steve, I'll get your thoughts on this in a moment. But first of all, Nick, you partially answered your own question. Yeah, they they did come first, and the Fantastics kind of came across as a rock and roll express uh, impersonators. But secondly, I think the guys could live with the rock and roll express. I think, you know, okay, it's clearly a gimmick for the girls, but they're good. We like them. They seem kind of cool. They seem like, you know, they, they kind of live their gimmick in a way. The guys did not like the Fantastics. The guys who had the, the Chippendales bow ties and all that stuff, the guys did not dig the Fantastics, despite how good they were in the ring. Yeah, I, I would I would compare it kind of like to um, like in, in, in another way, like comparing it to say like the British Bulldogs against the Rougeau brothers. I mean, I'm not comparing them on on, on ability or technique, but uh, when the Bulldogs came to the WWF, they had uh, you know their signature look, the 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 British colors on their tights and the in you know in the way they their outfits were and they're coordinated and what have you and. And then the the Rougeos would eventually have their color coordinated outfits too, but maybe originally they didn't. And it just to me, it seems like the Fantastics were just like such a watered down version. Maybe technically better wrestlers even, but they just seem like uh, you know. Whereas uh, the Rock and Roll Express were like the the hip, cool brand name, uh, a pair of jeans. The Fantastics were more like the jeans you would get uh, a no name jeans from some generic store that we don't know of. You know, it just didn't seem like uh, it was they they matched up good enough to the Rock and Rolls. No, they didn't, and you know. You have pretty boy types in wrestling. You have your Buddy Landells. You have your Gino Hernandezes. You have your Ric Flairs. What do they all have in common? They're bad guys. And the Fantastics were definitely pretty boy types with the bow ties and the tuxes. And that went over with, uh, in Memphis with the Fabulous Ones. The fans love the Fabulous Ones. But Memphis isn't the NWA. And I think that, too, worked against them. I remember, you know, I never had a problem with you know, pretty boy wrestlers, you know, Gino Hernandez and, you know, Kerry Von Erich was, was he a pretty boy? No, he was just a good looking guy doing his job. And I remember the Fantastics would come to the ring and they would take forever getting in the ring because they would high five every fan who wanted to high five. And I'm like, you know, five minutes of this a week would, would kind of wear on me. Yeah, it, it got old. It just felt old. Yeah, I, and once again, I, I love the Fantastics. They were a great team. The more I learned about wrestling, the more I grew to appreciate them. Uh, but I can see the average guy watching in the crowd being like, man, I don't like these guys. The Tower of Doom. Steve, I've got a lot to say about this. <laughs> and a lot of it's not good. Um, it's Jimmy Garvin, Ron Garvin, Steve Williams, and the Road Warriors versus Kevin Sullivan, Al Perez, the Russian assassin, Ivan Koloff, and Mike Rotundo in a Tower of Doom match. Now, 
Steve, one thing, I think one of the worst booked matches in wrestling history was the Great American Bash three years later. You had PN News and Bobby Eaton against, yeah, that's Steve Austin <laughs> and Terry Taylor. Right. And it's like, well, we want to have a scaffold match. Let's just throw guys up on a scaffold. No, that is that is the most backwards booking imaginable. What you want to have is when you have a gimmick match, you want it to be so that, you know, you want it to be there for a big reason. Like Larry Zabisco and Bruno Sammartino, they hated each other's gut so much they wanted to get into a, a steel cage and fight it out to the death. Skywalkers, 1986, the Road Warriors were so pissed, the Midnight Express, they wanted to get them off the scaffold and chuck them off the damn thing and watch <laughs> them splatter on the ground. Right. This match, the only people who have an issue is Kevin Sullivan and and Jimmy Garvin. Maybe Ronnie Garvin sticking up for his brother. Maybe Mike Rotundo wanting to, you know, defend uh, Kevin Sullivan. But that's it. Why are the Road Warriors in this match? Why do they care? Why does Al Perez care? To me, to me, it just seemed like this match was just the way of the promotion saying, "Hey, in years past, we've delivered. We've given you the the uh, skyscraper war games. The war games. We've given you the Night of the Skywalkers. You know, we've given you these huge events." And again, they should be focusing on the wrestling, not not these huge dev- you know devices and contraptions. I mean, when when the match uh, when when they transitioned from the last match to this match, I mean, you never saw such a huge delay. I, I almost wondered, like, was this the same thing you would have seen if you bought the video cassette? Because there was this huge, huge delay where you saw um, Precious get in the ring and she's waiting and waiting and waiting. And then they show all the, the technical guys were climbing on the cage and they put these two huge ladders up so that the guys could climb up into the top tier to begin the match. But there was this all this wasted time. I, don't, I didn't count it up, but it must have been like 10 or 12 minutes just getting the guys to go into the cage before they even got in the cage. Right. No, they I, I remember they had some technical glitch with the cage and it took, like you said, I think it was more like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I remember just you know, waiting around and I knew, you know, this wasn't just going to come down and, and be ready. But I do remember it took a long time and that got cut out of the video and it got cut out of the uh, of the what, what's available on Peacock. But. Now, there's world-class championship wrestling had their own Tower of Doom at the 1988 Parade of Champions show. So in wrestling lore, oh, the NWA stole their idea. No, Dusty Rhodes had planned on doing this for a while. I think Rhodes and Sullivan came up with the idea while Michael Hayes was still in the NWA. And then Michael Hayes left in February. uh, February or January 1988, he stole the idea from them. So that's kind of, it was Dusty's idea. He didn't steal it from World Class. World Class stole it from him. They just got it out there faster. Well, th- th- that's an interesting piece. I had no no clue about that. But but I mean, just just as a fan, like pretend I knew nothing about anything about wrestling. I'm just watching this on TV the other day. The whole thing just seems so bizarre. I mean, the match begins. You have Ivan Koloff, you have Ronnie Garvin. They're in the very top area. I mean, it looked like that shark cage match from Detroit, Stan Stasiak against Strongbow in a cage or whatever it was. But I mean, it's just, it was just it was just almost laughable. I mean, these guys were in this small. It looked like a small bedroom. They're fighting it out uh, between a each other. A phone booth. A phone booth, perhaps. <laughs> 
No, it, it, you're right. It was, it was, you know, I'm watching this and I'm just like, what am I watching? And then I'm like, okay, you know, by the way, I literally don't believe I have seen this match since June 10th, 1988. I've seen other parts of the show, but, you know, I just never got around to watching this match. And I'm sitting there going, you know, what am I watching? This makes no sense. Another thing that made no sense. Now, the idea is that you, you start at the top of this three story cage thing i don't even know what to call it and you know once you get to the bottom you get out and leave right Mm -hmm. well a baby face isn't supposed to do that yeah right Ron garvin just you know as soon as it's his turn his turn to leave he not only just walks through the door he walks right past precious and let's get into this she's at the bottom at the bottom floor on the ring she has some kind of a key that's going to get everyone out and she's in the ring and and instead of so this is dumb enough to begin with but then ronnie <laughs> garvin just walks right past her and he says oh you know i should stick around and make sure nothing happens to you like no nah, i gotta go precious bye and jim garvin doesn't even ask what he's doing when I was watching this, and I and you know, especially when the other rest of the match progresses, I kept saying to myself, "Why did he just leave?" And and like there's, because usually the whole idea of these types of matches are is that there's more heels than good guys, and the good guys have to find a way to overcome the disadvantage. But uh, he was gone and out of there. But of course, later on in the show, something would happen which would kind of explain it and put it all into focus, I guess. Uh, a little more foreshadowing, as you said. You know, it made a little bit more sense as the night went on, but maybe not, because <laughs> despite whatever happened, whatever Ron Garvin had up his sleeve later, I mean, he, he just walked by a family member. Right? You know, he he could have stuck around a little while longer. And I, I, like I said, the, the whole thing just made no sense to me. I, I thought it was, I thought it was just a terrible match. I don't know what to say. Well, there, there was there was one point in the match where the guys were kind of on the mid-level, and so they were actually having some action in the match, and Jim Ross gets all fired up, and he says, this is what the National Wrestling Alliance is all about, and he kind of he said it like in the voice of Bill Watts, like when Bill Watts would say something like, well, you know, in Titan Sports, they would never do this, but it, you know, here, we're men, men, are, men are men here, and we really put on a great show here. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and I also want to, he, 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 Jim, Jim Ross actually did a good job career wise in the NWA channeling his, his inner Bill Watts. I mean, I, I just wanted to mention too, that the whole, now let me take a step back. Okay. At, at the beginning, I think it was the end of 87 or beginning of 88 dusty, you know, as part of an agreement to stay on his book or, uh, gave up some responsibility. He more or less let Jim Cornette book his own angle or a a feud against the fantastics he let kevin sullivan book this angle and i never steve i never liked the whole angle i always thought it was just way too convoluted and sometimes wrestling is like way too simple like when paul orndorff turned on hulk hogan but this was just way too complicated and at the end of the day I don't think Jim Garvin got the kind of babyface sympathy he should have gotten out of this. And I, I, I hated the whole angle. And I, if I recall correctly, this was thankfully the end of that program. I don't know what Meltzer gave. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you ever got that Observer, the, Observer, <laughs> the issue of the Observer, but I don't know what Meltzer gave this as far as uh, stars. But God, Two and three quarters. Two and three quarters. I can't believe that. 
I strongly disagree with Dave. Usually he and I are you around the same page on star ratings, but not this time. I, I would I would think my rating would be closer to dud or almost negative points there because it's just I mean, th- there were little little minutes for high spots. In fact, uh this is one of those rare, rare matches where I think Road Warrior Animal actually outperformed Road Warrior Hawk. But other than that, it's a very forgettable match and one I would never recommend to anyone to, to waste their time with. I don't know if forgettable is the word for me. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, that time you go to the hospital with food poisoning. I'll remember that <laughs> one. That's true. <laughs> you know, one thing I, I will, I, I I watched it again today. I wanted to come away with something nice to say about it. Not something, you know, forced. The crowd was really into it. So I'll, I'll give it that. And the ending was good. Uh, the buildup towards the end was good. Although, once again, I have to throw this in. It made no sense when Mike Rotundo just got up and got out of the cage, leaving Kevin Sullivan to fight Jimmy Garvin by himself. You know, they, the two of them should have been in there, and Jim Garvin should have made his own save, two against one, and escaped the cage. But no, Mike just walked out. But again, the, the last mm, maybe three or four minutes of the match itself was good. And again, the, the crowd was hot. The crowd was hot all night. So I'll, I'll give it that. Well, well, they had promoted it as this real special thing. I, I think they didn't know why it was special or what was so unique about it, but they, it was just something different, I guess. And uh, it definitely was a very low spot of the night for me. Definitely. And one thing, too, I want to remind everyone, you know, when, whenever someone says, well, the crowd was into it. Well, yeah, that's what they came to see. Yes, true. True. You know, so you got to remember that, you know, the promotion has kind of fallen off a cliff at this point. Now, here's a match I was really looking forward to. Dusty Rhodes versus Barry Windham. Barry Windham is the United States champion after Dusty had the belt wrongfully stripped from him. Of course, that's how (laughs) Dusty always lost the belt. Dusty Rhodes, uh, ha- you know, Barry Windham, the champion, comes out first, and then Dusty comes out, which is backwards. The champion is also always supposed to come out first, but, I mean, Dusty's ego was what it was. It just, I mean, it just shows you how um, I think the fans were tired of Dusty. I mean, he did get a huge reaction. I'll, I'll admit that, but, you know, <sighs> In, in some ways, this is this could have been like their version of Bruno against Zabisco. I mean, it was it was Dusty against his kind of somewhat protege, and uh, you know, and the match was okay. I mean, the match was fine as as far as how it went, but uh, I mean, there wasn't that that you know crowd explosion. You know, really, you know, hoping that Dusty wins with all their hope and might, like they would with Bruno. Uh, it just it just this match did not capture their imagination. I mean, I, I enjoyed there. There was a sequence early in the match where Dusty actually hit Wyndham with a press slam, a DDT, and then even did a flying body press or a falling body press onto Wyndham. But uh, that was after that, the match really went downhill. Uh, I, you know what? You took the words right out of my mouth. The first five minutes of this match, maybe even more than that, maybe eight, were like, oh my, this is a hot match. Yeah. And Dusty was doing his trademark spots, and, and Barry was selling like crazy, and the fans were into it. You know, it was really a hot match. And then they went into a long rest hold with the claw, and it just slowed everything down. It just killed the crowd. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, they they worked that that cloud for minutes. I don't know how many, maybe six minutes or so. It just seemed to last forever. But you know, it, it just it was just kind of a shame in the way of you know here's peak Barry Windham and is is top of his game and probably should be main eventing against you know Rick Flair, maybe another guy who is really at his peak. And meanwhile, he's in there with Dusty, who is really looked bad and you know and, and dusty would end up going to do the polka dot thing a year later and 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 vince got got some mileage out of him i mean we gotta give dusty credit for that but it just it just seemed dusty just seemed so old here and just seemed out of place in this promotion well uh, a couple of things number one yeah dusty could not physically keep up with the pace that this promotion demanded quite frankly you know i mentioned it before by this point in his career maybe he should have been another you know maybe not as low on the card as jimmy valiant but a a jimmy valiant you know comedy wrestler and steve i'm going to read right from my notes two things that you had alluded to okay Mm -hmm. jim ross and barry windham had not peaked yet (laughs) okay i was like Oh, yes, he did. We didn't know it at the time. He peaked. But Barry Windham had peaked, and to this day, I'm very disappointed by that. Mm -hmm. And I'll read verbatim. Guess what both of these guys were doing a year later? (laughs) WWF. Yeah, and and both in roles, you know, Barry, when he first, you know, I first heard he was going to the WWF, I thought he was going to do huge things there. And then I see him go to a draw with Tito Santana early on. I'm like, okay, he's not going to do anything here. And he didn't. And I'm just guessing, but he probably pissed Vince off with his attitude. And I mean, Dusty, I, I give him credit. I will never back down from this. They gave him that polka dot gimmick. That whole, you know, what was he like? You know, the vignettes where he's a plumber right. and he's delivering pizza. They did that to embarrass him. They they claim they didn't, and there are people who claim that they didn't. But oh yes, they did. If you were around in 1989 <clears throat> and you saw Dusty go from what he was in the NWA to what he was in the WWF, you know that they were like, "All right, Dusty, we'll give you a job." But dot dot dot. And I give Dusty credit; he made it work. He absolutely got over in the WWF. Oh yeah, yeah, he did. He did really well there, and, and I, I think, I think, um, I think, it, you know, perhaps that may have been the biggest year of, of his career, money wise. Honestly, I mean, I think he made uh, in that run with with Savage and uh, go around the horn with all the top stars, DiBiase. I think he may have made close to four hundred grand. I don't know if he ever made that much before. I mean. Any, he made uh, five hundred grand a year as Booker slash okay. wrestler for JCP. Well, I stand corrected. <laughs> and that's, I, I, but he, you know what? He might have made more in the WWF, but but, but I doubt. No, I think it, you're, I think you're right, John. And, and but but I mean, you know, in retrospect, I mean, in, in a perfect world, maybe what they should have done in Crockett again with Dusty being the Booker himself, it kind of makes it even more complicated. But he should have been like the Bruno, the living legend, who only comes out like maybe maybe once every six months or so you know comes out in a special tag team match or whatever and and beats on beats down the top heel or whoever and then goes back into you know semi-retirement and comes out when they need him again you know that kind of a special person from the past they can bring out and and pop a big house you know i think dusty it might have been too old school to do what the thing I thought he should have done. If I'm Jim Crockett, I, I tell him, look, Dusty, you know, we're going, why don't we put you in semi-retirement? Okay. You'll still be the booker. I need a booker who 
that is it's not a 40 hour a week job it's a 60 hour a week job and and you can't be on the road doing that and and being the booker in 1988 it's not 1978 anymore i know you guys used to be in cars and you talk about you know what angles you should do and bounce ideas off of each other but you're not doing that anymore yeah so and plus he was you know way past finished as a performer but I don't know. I I don't. I'm gonna like I said. I'm gonna do a lot of dusty badger today. He he should not have been in the position he was. I get the whole storyline, but you know you didn't have to use that storyline. Well, I appreciate Jim Crockett's loyalty to Dusty, but after a while, it's it's become insanity. Really, it's the death of his company. But what what were what were your thoughts on the uh, the finish to the match? Well, I, I thought, you know, once again, Dusty is, is he's rolling out all of his cliched finishes. <laughs> oh, no, there's a ref bump. And I'm just like, you've got it. You know, I, I, I didn't remember that there was a ref bump. I didn't remember every detail on this show. I'm just, oh, my God, every cliche in the book. And then Ron Garvin comes out and he sucker punches Dusty, like out of nowhere. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Once again, another dusty cliche, a turn, a turn that came out of nowhere with no logic behind it. And this promotion did way too many turns to begin with. And now we've got another one. Yeah, I can remember that letter to the Observer. The guy, the guy wrote, uh, uh, how come it's always that old bird song, turn, turn, turn in WCW? Yeah, I mean, you know, they they it, it's like everything else in wrestling. It's like blood. The the less you use it, the more effective it is. And I mean, Dusty was always a little bit turn crazy and by 1988 he'd gone off the deep end. Well, it, uh, the next part of the show is actually hilarious uh, unintentionally. So, uh, they show Ron Garvin backstage getting his payoff. He gets this suitcase filled with cash and he's, they show him, you know, loving all the cash and and he's with the Gary Hart and he's with Kevin Sullivan I think and then oh, he was with JJ Dillon JJ Dillon that's right and and then the, the 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 thing that really cracked me up is he's walking out of the building he walks past this little uh, group of ring rats that are sitting there I did not see you gotta that. Watch that again. <laughs> okay, but I do remember Ronnie doing the Scrooge McDuck thing. Yes, yeah, it's just like you know dumping it on his head. He's all orgasmically happy. He was. One one thing I wanted to talk about, though, with the Dusty match, a rare, very rare pinfall for Dusty Rhodes. I can't remember the last time Dusty was pinned before this. I mean, I I do know he did the big thing in Florida with uh, Kevin Sullivan, I think, when he got stabbed in the heart or whatever. He got pinned there. Uh, But, uh, yeah, it was very rare. You're right. It was very rare. He he did jobs in mid south in like eighty four eighty five, but those weren't on TV. I this might have been the first pinfall loss he had ever taken uh, since he came full time to Jim Crockett Promotions. And I say that think about all the titles Dusty held. He held the United States title. He held the oh wait a minute he did lose the NWA championship by pinfall when flair had him in the figure four so okay we've got that one but you know he would he would win titles and he'd lose them on technicalities oh dusty was stripped of the title he lost the tv title when he was injured and unable to defend it he lost the nwa uh, tv title in a first blood match against tully blanchard so talk about just you know protecting yourself to the max but he did the clean job here a little clean job ronnie garvin knocked him out but at least he took the pinfall i'll give him credit for that 
when you have a show like this where every match has some ludicrous ending or some just something so outrageous happen i mean i just i just miss the old days of the the somebody setting the baseline let's have a let's have a 20 minute draw to start the show let's you know the old-fashioned way of doing things instead like every match has to have a goofy screwy ending i i hate it i hate it no, I'm I'm with you. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, we mentioned Barry Windham was at his prime here. I loved him at the end of the match, outside the ring, staggering around with that glassy-eyed look on his face. He was so great at that. Oh, yeah. He, he uh, I mean, he apparently had a very complicated life and uh, all the, you know, difficult challenges he had. And I'm sure it was right around this time or soon after when we had the family challenges with Blackjack and Kendall and what soon happened after, to them. That was 1990. Oh, it was 89. You're right. It was right around the corner. Yeah, it was right around the corner. And, and you know, he had lots of different personal challenges. And, you know, in a perfect world, Barry Windham would have been a long-term NWA champion, and we could have enjoyed his wonderful body of work. But instead, his career is just filled with uh, starts and stops. Steve, let me ask you a question. If someone you know, someone you thought you knew, or someone you knew, said, "Hey, I'll give you," uh, well, I forget the, the the actual amount, but let's say I'll give you a quarter of a million dollars in counterfeit money for ten grand, <laughs> would you take it? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> you see, I, I've thought this through. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What what am I going to do with twenty five thousand two hundred fifty thousand dollars of counterfeit money? Money. First of all, I have to hide it, right? Mm-hmm. So where am I going to hide it? And then if you spend it, where are you going to spend it? I can't go to the supermarket every week with counterfeit money. Even in nineteen eighty nine, they're going to catch you. Yeah. If you keep going to the same place, they're going to catch you. Yeah. If you start spending it around the area, they're going to catch you. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's not even worth the. You know, just keep your ten grand. Yeah. Well, you know, these guys had grown up in a world, uh, you uh-huh. know, a world of wrestling where things were kind of not on the up and up, and uh, and they thought that people were marks, and they thought they could get away with it, and of course, we found out what happened. Yeah, you're buying it from an FBI agent. <laughs> uh oh. Details. Details. <laughs> Hey, uh, I'll give you a uh, hundred grand and counterfeit money if you let me go. <laughs> oh God! All right, so now we get to Ric Flair versus Lex Luger, kind of the dream match they had been setting up for over a year and a half. I want to say. I mean, they brought Lex Luger in, and they did it the right way. They took care of Lex Luger. They saw him as the next big thing. Yeah. They brought him in as a horseman. Uh, they turned him. The, the, the Lex Luger turn was done way ahead of schedule. I think they were supposed to do it right before this show, and instead they did it right after uh, Starcade '87. But you know they had did a really good job building up Lex Luger. So they did Flair versus Luger so much over the years that. Me saying that on June 10th or excuse me, July 10th, 1988, it was a dream match, but it was. Yeah, it, it was um, it was a fine match. I mean, for what it was, I mean, uh, Luger had gotten to the point where he was, you know, more than capable of having a good match, and you know, Ric Flair could really have a good match with anybody, and uh, and they just had like you know lots of great spots in the match. Luger did the big power moves, and F- Flair sold for him, took you know incredible bumps for him. I mean, it was a good good story match. I mean, I would probably give it you know three or three and a quarter stars. I don't think it was you know a four star match. But, 
you know, as far as from Ric Flair's point of view, you know, supposedly Billy Graham heard him say at one point, you know, how come this guy Hulk Hogan is what everybody talks about rather than talking about me? And I think that this match was a good example of that. Um, with the WWF, uh, you know, with Hulk Hogan, he won decisively in his matches, his big matches. With the NWA champ, uh, he would hold on to the belt by a hook or a crook. And I think that, you know, if the fans were even believing in wrestling and they just believed that that's just how it was, I mean, I think that was the answer to the question. Why did they think Hogan was so much better? Because Flair would always either win the title or win the match just by a hook or a crook or get DQ'd. Or I think that's why the, the belt got so devalued and that's why he got Flair got so mad about it as this year would progress because he realized Dusty was devaluating the, the championship. No, the fans were always going home disappointed because Ric Flair clearly was not, you know, we talked about this earlier. Ric Flair clearly was not the better wrestler in this match, but he can't comes away with the championship. And once again, it's okay if you do that once a year, but if you do it night after night, you know, over and over in the same town as Dusty was doing, you know, the fans get tired of seeing that. And I think by by this point, the NWA was long past the point where they needed to get away from that. By the way, let me take a step back. Let's say you lived in Dallas and you had been a wrestling fan for 10 years and you're watching this. It's the Von Erichs versus Ric Flair all over again. You've seen it too many times. And the NWA needed to get to the point where it's okay. We need to pick whether it's Sting, whether it's Lex Luger, whether it's Ric Flair. He's going to be our top baby face. He's going to be the champion. You're going to have uh, you know, a, a series of matches against the top bad guy in the promotion. And you know, the, the, the good guy is going to come out at the end of the day ahead, just like a Spider-Man or a, a Superman movie. Yeah, and, and that's where Vince had his huge advantage over these guys because instead of having that that uh, you know having a, a dice with uh, Flair on it or Luger on it or Sting, uh, Vince always had Hogan as his main thing, and he had uh, you know first with Andre and then with Savage, and but but he had these guys all set up. You know, I mean, Vince knew what he was going to do from like. If you know if today's WrestleMania, he knew where next WrestleMania would be, and he kind of had an idea where all the points in between would be. But but Dusty and his crew, they had they had maybe even more talent than Vince had uh, as far as big headliners, but they didn't really know how to utilize them to their best uh, ability, and I think that's where it all got screwed up. You know, the, the best analogy I can come up with is what if you're at the theater watching Rocky Four and Rocky Balboa at the end of the movie keeps his title on a technicality like <laughs> like like Ric Flair does here. It's like, no, you have the good guy come out ahead, not maybe not right away, but by the end of the movie, the good guy comes out ahead and everyone's happy. Uh, and that's what the WWF did. And, and the NWA needed to start doing this a long time ago. And they, they just didn't. Here's what I was wondering coming into the match, Steve. Now, we all know the old wrestling cliche, and cliches become cliches because they, they usually have some truth to them, is the, the money is in the chase. And we found out afterward that 
the Ric Flair versus Lex Luger rematches around the horn drew really well. They drew some of the best gates the promotion had in 1988. I went to the uh, Philadelphia arena the next month and it was close to sold out for Flair versus Luger. So at the end of the day, you could say, all right, short term, they did the right finish. But I mean, there, there's coming into the show though. I thought they needed to do something big and I, while I knew that the money was in the chase and I had someone tell me, yeah, Flair's retaining somehow, I mean, they, could they have changed their minds? Could this have been Lex Luger's big night? Should it have been his big night? Like I said, they, they, I thought they needed to shake things up, and I think that they, they needed to have something big happen on this show. Again, I felt this needed to be their WrestleMania three. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. And it, it, we, as we know how everything would play out, if you look over the next three or four years for the promotion, you just had these same guys kind of going back and forth. I mean, Dusty would be gone, but you'd have uh, you know those rare moments where Sting won the title briefly or for a few months, and Luger was always in the mix, and sometimes Barry Windham was in the championship mix. And it really wasn't until when Flair went to the WWF, and I think Vader got his big run, and, and he had his own challengers, and Cactus Jack and people came in, and Rick Rude eventually came in, and it was kind of like a new regime in WCW by that point. But it just seemed like... Uh, it just seemed like these guys were just going through the motions. I mean, there was no major changes. There was no big decision or it, it was just a lot of effort, a lot of things in motion, a lot of spinning plates, but it didn't take them anywhere. No, it didn't. And you know, this match, it was a good match. I would give it, a, I would give it three stars. It needed to be a four, four and a half star match. I mean, they, they needed some, this show needed something big and it just wasn't there. And I felt this match needed to be a classic and it just wasn't. One funny little spot in the near the big, very beginning of the match. I hope you caught this. Uh, you, you know how like it always seemed, and we were uh, we were busting on David Manning last week when we did the last show. But this time I'm going to bust on Tommy Young. And he he found a way to get his little spot in in this match. Like he really need, needed it. Did you remember that he had a shove flare outside the ring? That was so so ridiculous. It's like Flair needed to get that spot in. <laughs> It didn't matter who the referee was. You know, Flair would shove the referee and the referee would shove Flair back and sometimes knock him back and sometimes even knock him down. And by this point, they needed to permanently retire that spot. That's a Flair thing. That's not a Tommy Young thing. He did it with everybody. I got tired of that. I really did. (laughs) I mean, it's one thing if you do it once. I keep saying this. You do it once in, in every town. Every couple of years, but, you know, Rick was be- becoming way too reliant on this. This if we, now the for those who don't know, the match was stopped by the Maryland State Athletic Commission uh, when Rick when Lex Luger was bleeding just a little bit. And you see the Maryland State Athletic Commissioner grab Tommy Young by the leg and tell him to stop the match. Now, for years I've been told that that was legit, that the Maryland State Athletic Commission told them that if you have blood on this show, on any of the matches on this show, we're going to stop the match. I'm now wondering, because it, it was timed so well, the guy was about to grab Tommy Young's leg as Lex Luger was putting Ric Flair in the human torture rack. Was the, the State Athletic Commissioner in on it? Did they say, okay, look, 
you can stop the match. Lex Luger's bleeding. Uh, here's when it's happening. Just grab Tommy Young by the leg. I think that was all part of the uh, the angle, you know, to end the match. I I don't I don't think it was like a legitimate like, hey, we got to stop it because he's bleeding. I mean, if that was legit. Well, well, they, I, well, I I will say in my defense that you know, as you as you all know, John, uh, the big title change from uh, WWF where uh, Bruno lost to a superstar. Superstar is a bloody mess and and had been for like the last maybe two or three minutes of that match and, and he pinned Bruno. I mean, there was no, you know, no commissioner running in to stop the match before it happened. Maybe, maybe that was just because uh, the elder McMahon had a better, you know, payoff or better deal with the commission. I don't know, but uh, yeah, let me throw this in really sure. quick, Steve. It's, it, it, I mean, that's 1977. Yeah. Uh, this is 1988. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that they, uh, had the blood ban in place was because AIDS was a thing. Right. I mean, that's true. It, that I think, you know, that was the difference right there. Yeah. Yeah. A- AIDS was not an issue in the seventies. You're absolutely right there. Uh, but, but I, I will say just as far as a fan watching this uh, again, we, we had dusty finishes in two of the other matches. And now here we have a third dusty finish. And, and this time they're, they're laying the blame on the commissioner. It, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference at this point. If, if I'm a fan, no. I'm just pulling my hair out. I mean, Dusty used all of the finishes on this night that he needed to get away from, including and especially this one, that the Dusty finish. We think the NWA World Ch- uh, Championship has changed hands when, in fact, it has not. The baby faces are in the ring celebrating with Lex Luger, and Gary Michael Capetta says that Ric Flair is still the champion. Again, you know, I remember the first time I read about that finish. I think it was 1978. I read about the the Memphis promotion mm-hmm, doing it mm-hmm. with Harley Race and and Jerry Lawler, and thinking, "Wow, that's a pretty cool finish." Yeah, well, because it was the first time they ever used it, and you know, but by this time it had been done over and over again to the point where it should have never been done again. You know, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, this show was just all the evidence you needed that Dusty needed to go. It, it, it just just made the promotion look so kind of second rate and low rent. I mean, uh, uh, again, I mean, here I go beating on WWF again, banging on how great they are. But, you know, WrestleMania 3, we'll use that. Uh, that's That, of course, is the greatest show ever, I guess. Uh, I mean, you had like 12 matches, but there were no screw job endings in any of those matches. They were all... Uh, you know, pin. There were some couple of DQs in there, but they weren't uh, anything overboard. And then you had Andre losing via pinfall. I, I mean, I, I get the impression that Dusty and Crockett and all these guys had never sat down and seen a show like that where there were clean endings and realized that the fans enjoy seeing that kind of conclusion, that that kind of satisfactory conclusion. I, I don't, I don't understand how they could sit there and think that a fan at home with all these weird endings that are just out of left field, how, how they would feel satisfied. How, how could they put that together? You know, if Dusty was booking WrestleMania three, he absolutely would have had some kind of a screw job finish <laughs> with the idea that, you know, hey, I can put these two on the road together and make a whole lot of money, not seeing that, you know, having that clean finish where Hulk Hogan beats the bad guy and Bobby Heenan, you know, looks as defeated as a person has ever looked. 
that made the fans go home happy and it made them want to purchase the next pay-per-view. It made them like the promotion. Oh, yeah. Even like Harley Race going over JYD that made him look good. So when they had the Hogan against Harley Race matches directly after WrestleMania 3, there was a reason to get excited about that. Yeah, that that was good booking, and I'm so glad. I got to see two of those matches at the Garden. It didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but man, I got to see Hulk Hogan versus Harley Race live. That That is very cool. I, I wish I was in your shoes for that. Yeah, and, you know, like, like I said, at the time, I was like, oh, Harley's getting you know, way past his prime, whatever, but I'll go. And like, I got to see those two legends wrestle against each other. Steve, what did you think of this show as a whole? Um. <sighs> Mixed emotions, I guess. I, I, th- I think performance-wise, uh, you know, you had some really good wrestling on there. The main event was good. The opening match, I think, was even better. Uh, the, cor- the Cornette match was okay too. Uh, but but just just all the all the screw job endings just left a really bad taste in my mouth. Uh, if I had to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down or thumbs in the middle, I guess I would give it a thumbs down just based on uh, how turned off I'd be from all the screw job endings. I would give it a, a kind of a, a in between a thumbs down and a thumbs in the middle. The in ring match, the in ring action was good. It was a good show that needed to be a great show, and it wasn't even as good as I remembered it. I, I watched, I've watched it twice now in the past forty eight hours, and it was just you know it left me a little bit flat. They, they needed that one great match, and the opener was the best match, and I, you know it, it wasn't a match of the year candidate. You know, like I said, it's you know on a scale of one to ten, it was a five, and it needed to be a nine or a ten, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good uh, summary of it. And I, I would also add this this final comment uh, for any of you fans who are, are big fans of Jim Crockett Promotions or WCW and want to hear a lot more uh, detailed uh, talk about it. Um, there's a really uh, highly recommended uh, on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, uh, Jim Cornette's uh, Deep Dive Omnibus, which covers 89 and, and 90. Uh, but it does cover some of the stuff that we just talked about in 88 as well. Uh, that really delves into uh, Jim's uh, uh, book of, of all the matches. And he really goes into heavy, heavy detail about everything that happened in JCP. And it, it is just, it's just mind-blowing. And between him and what Dave Meltzer talked about in the yearbook, uh, with all the in-house fighting amongst Crockett and Dusty and Flair and the Tully and Arn, it's just, it just uh, mind-numbing how uh, an explosion behind the scenes it was. Yeah, I mean, no one was happy. I was, I was around Jim Cornette for a, for a while, like you know, two nights yeah. right after he walked out of the NWA. Yeah. And we're talking like I get to Philly and I see Brian Hildebrand, and he's like, "Guess what? Jim Cornette and Bobby, uh, not Bobby, and Stan Lane walked out." And you know, guys walk out and they come back, but you should you should have heard Corny that weekend. Holy crap! Uh, Ole Anderson, his name wasn't Ole Anderson anymore. His name was goddamn fucking Ole. <laughs> I swear that that is how Jim Cornette 
addressed Ole Anderson, and he was so pissed, and he was so fed up, and he was talking about how they at Halloween Havoc, they wanted to put a pumpkin on his head and have him like running around like a headless horseman or something. Oh, he was just so pissed off the whole time. But anyway, I'll tell you what, I know we've gone a little bit over an hour, but I want to grab a couple of questions. Uh, Mike Wilson asks, was it viable for Luger to win the title here and carry it to Starcade and not screw the fans as Shivani realized, immediately realized that they did. What do you think, Steve? You know, uh, I, I really, I really, as a fan, I, I wish they had given him that chance. I think, uh, you know, Barry Wyndham was a much more polished performer, would have been probably a better champion. But, you know, if they were trying to, to put somebody as their version of a Hulk Hogan, uh, Luger was probably the closest they were going to come to that. I mean, in my opinion, you know, look, in wrestling, you need to have long-term planning. I think on some level you need, they needed to kind of throw the long-term planning away and do what they needed to do to get through the day, to get, you know, to survive, which they did not do. Mm -hmm. And I think they needed to put the title on Lex Luger on this night. They needed something big to happen on this show. They need to needed to embrace the WWF model. You could argue that sting would have been a better choice. That, that's easy to say 35 years later. I don't think anyone was really saying that in 1988. You also needed at some point to turn Flair uh, and make him the number two baby face, which is going to be tough because, you know, when Turner buys you out, the big, a big part of it is, Hey, Turner's a big Ric Flair fan. So you got to keep him happy. But again, to get through the day, I absolutely would have put the championship on Lex Luger on this night. You've got go around the horn with the rematches against Ric Flair. Then you've got a long-term program with Barry Windham waiting in the wings. Uh, then you can have a clash of the champion special Lex Luger versus Arn Anderson is the main event or, you know, a big TV match Lex Luger against Tully Blanchard is the main event so there's a million ways they could have done this and i get that they did big houses after this show uh, so you have that positive but that was a very short term positive you know you're absolutely right because uh you know a- after that short term was over with and cornet when it went into this heavily on on the show i was referring to uh the houses in 89 even though when i, when I think of 89 i think of you know steamboat against flair i think of funk against flair uh, but those were just like these isolated standout moments. Uh, their house show business had been so damaged and the, the number of fans going to the shows and the number of uh, the revenues had dropped so substantially. And, and that, that whole buyout that they did from uh, Bill Watts and UWF was such a, a complete and utter failure as they were expecting all this huge revenue to come in based on the syndicated television. And they only got maybe half of what they were expecting out of that and it really was the beginning of the end of the promotion it was just very sad and then the whole Starcade 87 debacle i mean dusty Rhodes came in in 1984 and he basically cleaned house okay mm-hmm. i mean he did and what needed to happen in 1988 I, i'm gonna piss a lot of people off by saying this they needed to do what dusty did in 1984 again i will you know go to my grave saying that 
when Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard left, as talented and as great as they were, the horsemen were in the way of the next big thing the promotion needed to do, and they, they need to get rid of that whole concept. And they kind of did clean house in 1989, and in my opinion, they had a way better 1989 than they did in, in 1988. I mean, just... You know, the, the whole uh, Dusty and the Road Warriors against the Four Horsemen thing had been done to death, and they needed to get away from it. And if they lost a few fans by doing that, you're okay, that that's the price you have to pay for possibly gaining new fans who, you know, don't want to see the same thing over and over again. No, I, I agree completely. Uh, let me look here. I've got the questions in front of me, too. Um, uh, did you see any other worthwhile questions here? Well, I, I see worthwhile questions, but we have gone over. And I just want to wrap it up with uh, Dave Lane says, I was at that show. I was at this show that finished to the main event sucked live to me at the time. I know multiple people who went to this show, Steve. I, I Once again, I wish I was one of them. Um, I mean, you know, that crowd was so hot coming in. Everyone was kind of, you know, they were almost cheering for the promotion. And from what I've heard, most of the fans left that building pissed off and you don't want to do that. It, it just, it just got old. I, I think uh, the, the fans were, were, were <laughs> real smart fans. You know, they were, may not have been smart to the business, but they were, you know, intelligent consumers and they, they just wanted to go to the show and have a good time. They, they don't want to see a disqualification or a, a, an ending where the commissioner is involved in every match. I mean, it just, it just makes no sense. No, and again, that foreshadowing me before the, you know, weeks before the show, say, wow, I'm surprised you're doing that, this in Maryland because <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But anyway, Steve, thank you for coming on the show again. We're gonna, I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, Steve, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I look forward to our next show. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does every week producing the Stick to Wrestling podcast. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.